0: Within a generation, Christianity spread to Rome. And in the year 64, the first state sponsored persecution of the church tested the resolve of Christ's followers to maintain their ethic of love. The Roman writer Tacitus records the brutality of Emperor Nero.
1: Nero punished the Christians with the utmost refinements of cruelty. Vast numbers were convicted. They were covered with the skins of wild beasts and torn to death by wild dogs. Or they were fastened to crosses and, when daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus.
0: It's hard to imagine now, but this is where it happened. Nero's great circus, or arena, ran straight down here with a massive stadium over there. The crowds watched on as countless numbers of Christians turned the other cheek and loved their enemies all the way to their deaths. One leader, himself soon to be martyred in Rome, wrote to the church. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. And in response to their cruelty, Be civilised. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our gracious forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters. Let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. I've known and taught about this event for years, but to actually stand here is quite confronting. I wonder, could I have done what those Christians did? The first Christians lived between four horrendous moments of persecution like that. The first was in Jerusalem between the 30s and 60s AD, when the powerful priestly class, which had removed uh, Jesus himself, ousted Christians from the synagogues, commissioned a Pharisee named Saul turned Paul, to hunt down the Christians and in AD 62 the high priest of Jerusalem himself, a man called Ananas, rounded up Jesus' brother James and several others uh, who led the Jerusalem church and had them publicly executed, for which we have external evidence. Within a couple of years the Jerusalem Christians en masse fled about 120 kilometers northeast to a little wilderness town called Pella. And then we lose track of the Jerusalem Christians after that. The second moment of persecution broke out in Rome in the year 64 during the reign of the despotic Emperor Nero, and you just saw a little bit of a clip about that. He had Christians uh, torn to pieces by wild dogs in the arena, and torched on crosses to act as um, party lights for his events. The third moment of persecution was under Emperor Domitian, who was called by the Roman population Nero revived, because only Domitian was as despotic as Nero in the history of the emperors. This is now the mid-90s exactly when the book of Revelation was written. And Domitian ordered that a giant statue be set up in Ephesus of himself and ordered that people worship the statue. In fact, the pagan high priest of this province was commissioned to ensure that people worshipped the statue of the emperor. Suetonius, one of the great Roman writers from whom we learn lots of stuff about the ancient world, in fact says that uh, Domitian, the the first emperor to ever try this, demanded that everyone address him and refer to him in print even as Dominus et Deus Nostra, our Lord and God. The fourth moment of persecution was 15 years later when in the year 110 Trajan is now emperor and Pliny is governor of the northern provinces of what we call Turkey, what they called Asia Minor. And we wouldn't know about this persecution except for a single letter we have from Pliny to Trajan outlining his policy of killing Christians if they won't bow down to the imperial statue and I've been quoting lines from that throughout this series. I've studied all of these events for years and I do find myself asking the question, could I do what those Christians did? I don't know. Could I bear witness to the crucified Lord? right to the point of death. Well, Revelation chapter 12 and 13 tells the story of this persecution from Judea to Rome to the provinces. And it does so not in straight historical prose, of course, but in a literary technique known as apocalyptic, John, shut up a Jewish literary style used in anxious times to unveil vital, universal truths through coded imagery. And the code comes in really helpful for stuff like we're about to read. Chapter 12 and 13, Revelation. Because in chapters 12 and 13, John describes the opponents of Christ, these persecutors, as pure evil, as the devil himself. We're about to read of dragons and beasts and they all represent the evil forces trying to wipe out Christianity. And John says, they will be, indeed they have been, conquered through a lamb who died for the world. It's an extraordinary thing. Let's work our way through then. First, the dragon of Judea, Revelation chapter 12. Thanks
1: Annette. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that mighty serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for the time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus."
0: Despite the, let's say, extravagant imagery, uh, a, a dragon hunting down a woman wanting to devour her child, this is actually pretty plain sailing uh, as far as uh, the book of Revelation goes. The woman in distress about to give birth isn't uh, Mary about to give birth uh, to Jesus. Uh, we, we suddenly think that, don't we, because we think Herod the Great tried to kill her, is it Herod the Great? No, um, a, a woman in uh, labor pains is a very common image of the true Israel, the remnant of the 12 tribes uh, in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 26:17 says, as a pregnant woman is about to give birth, writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. Jeremiah 31 has the same idea. There are other passages as well. This is the true Israel. This is the remnant of Israel about to give birth to the Messiah. She has a crown of 12 uh, 12 thorns, 12 stars on her head. See there in the second half of verse 1, uh, a crown of 12 stars. Uh, This is clearly a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a picture of the true Israel, the remnant of of God's people. Verse 5, she gives birth to one who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Well, that's a description of the Jewish Messiah. It's straight out of Psalm 2.9, plain sailing. The remnant of Israel gave birth to the Messiah. The dragon, in verse 3, is said to have seven heads and seven crowns. Seven. We've met seven many times before in the book of Revelation. It's usually the divine number, the perfect number, but here it's the counterfeit, perfection, it's perfect evil, it's a counterfeit God and that's why in verse 9 it says this is actually the devil or Satan, the original serpent, pure evil. A war breaks out between these two forces and there's a battle in heaven and then its counterpart on earth. So in heaven, verse 7, a war broke out in heaven, Michael And his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but they lose. But then there's a battle on earth as well, which is kind of the same battle, but on the earthly plane. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is the true Israel, the remnant of Israel, who had given birth to the male child. And then verse 15, he keeps going, uh, then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away, and so on. Now, the woman represents the original church. Not because the metaphor has changed, but because the original Aramaic-speaking Jewish church saw themselves as the remnant of Israel, as the true 12 tribes. So it's exactly the same image. The 12 tribes, the original Israel, gave birth to the Messiah, but the true remnant carries on in the person of uh, the church. And the point is... The struggle of the church might look merely sociological and political and sometimes military, but it's actually cosmic, eternal, supernatural. And God has it all covered. The woman, the true Israel, the original Jewish church, has a place prepared for her. Verse 14, The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would uh, be taken care of for a time, that's one year, times, that's two years, and half a time, that's half a year, that's three and a half years, that's 42 months, that's 1260 days, that's the time for this time, not eternal time, this time, the time that we all uh, live in. This is almost certainly a reference to the flight of the Jewish Christians to Pella to escape uh, the persecution. Um, and uh, and the death that they would surely have faced in the early to uh, mid-60s. The dragon is enraged that she escapes. And verse 17, went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who's her offspring? The church of the rest of the world, which all came from this little remnant Jewish church. But the crucial thing to notice is that while this battle is ongoing... The war has already been won. It's one of the key points of the whole book of Revelation, actually. The battles are everywhere, but the war has already been decided. Verse 5 tells us that Christ is ascended, the devil is thrown down, verse 9, and so heaven breaks out in a song. Verses uh, 10 through to 12, see how it's indented in our Bibles? It's a hymn, and actually, if we unrolled the uh, scroll of the book of Revelation and folded it in half, it would fall on this hymn. This is the physical center of the book and it's the central message of the book. Let's read it. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice. Here we have an insight to the central idea of the book of Revelation. Despite all the militaristic imagery, all the violent imagery of uh, the book of Revelation, this is actually just using the violent imagery of Rome against itself to say the true victory comes through a lamb who's been sacrificed Jesus. And it comes through people being willing to bear testimony to the crucified Jesus. And it comes through the people who are willing to suffer for their testimony about Jesus. These are the true weapons against evil, bearing witness to Jesus Christ and suffering for His name. That's the inner secret of the book of Revelation. That's all we need We've been reconciled to God and nothing can change that. And we can help others be reconciled to God through the gospel and through our suffering. The truly secure Christian who knows that the war has finished doesn't pin their hopes on earthly victories whether cultural, legislative, Sociological victories. No, the truly secure Christian just goes on bearing witness to Christ and bearing whatever suffering comes. The insecure Christian, on the other hand, looks at political losses, looks at criticisms of journals, uh, looks at the secularization, so called, of the world, and confuses these. Mere battles with the war. They interpret mere cultural, sociological, legislative demographic changes with the loss of Christianity. No. We have already won. Because Christ has died for our sins and been raised to life, we are reconciled to God for eternity. And the only weapon we really need is to bear testimony. that and suffer for it we must never forget the song if this hymn in the middle of chapter 12 is the center of the book the central line of the central hymn is verse 11 may we never forget it i i do think it is the main theme of the book of revelation they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death well, all of this, chapter 12, is a prelude to chapter 13, unsurprisingly, uh, to the, the persecutions that roll out from Judea and the activity of the dragon into the rest of the world where we meet a beast. The dragon gives power to the beast and the beast gives power to another beast who makes the world worship the first beast on pain of exclusion from the economy, on pain of death, even. Revelation 13 depicts the most difficult question facing the early church. Will we worship Rome and enjoy the privileges? Or will we worship the true Lord, Jesus, and suffer the consequences? So I give you the beasts of Rome, Revelation
1: 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced, forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666.
0: The beast from the sea is clearly Rome. Everyone knew that Rome had conquered the Mediterranean world from the sea. They were experts at naval warfare and land Warfare, every kind of warfare. They had taken North Africa and Libya and Egypt from the sea. They took Greece from the sea. Then they took Turkey from the sea. And they controlled all of Israel and Syria from the port city going into Israel, Caesarea Maritima. They are the sea beast. And this beast in verse 1 has seven heads, which tells you it's a rival. To God, the number seven, pure evil. And on each head is, quote, a blasphemous name. Well, <laughs> this is the emperors who collected all sorts of cool names for themselves. All the emperors called themselves Divi Philius, son of God. The coin around my neck has that blasphemous name on it. The emperors calling themselves Divi Phileos. But Domitian went further, as I said before, and insisted that everyone call him, whether in print or in speech, Deus et Dominus, God and Lord. An extraordinary blasphemy. Then there's that weird reference in verse 3, did you notice? And then it's repeated in verse 12, uh, this beast has a fatal wound that had been healed. The fact that it's mentioned twice, in verse 3 and verse 12, means you're probably meant to take notice of it. What's it saying? It's either a parody of Jesus, as in Jesus was crucified but rose again, and so this is just a parody. But it's more likely, at least most scholars think, it's a reference to Nero revived in Domitian. This is a very widespread Roman rumor. Why? Because Nero, we think, killed himself in June sixty-eight. But so few people witnessed it, immediately rumours spread throughout Rome that he'd just nicked off and he'd come back any day now. And as the decades rolled on, a myth spread that Nero would come back sort of cosmically. And when Domitian came along in the 90s, when the book of Revelation was written, people were calling him the revived Nero because he was the most despotic emperor since Emperor Nero. That's probably what it refers to. The proof of this beast's authority, whether we think of it as Nero or Domitian, is war. Success in war, the Roman specialty. Verse uh, 4 makes this uh, pretty clear. Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Well, most people thought no one. Verse 7, uh, he was given power to wage war against holy, uh, God's holy people and conquer them and was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation but again notice from verse 8 forward true victory already belongs to the followers of the lamb the little lamb who'd been crucified verse 8. all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the lamb's book of life the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world whoever has ears let them hear look at this If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. John, of course, is writing this from captivity on the island of Patmos, having been sent there by Roman authorities um, for causing too much trouble in Ephesus, where he'd he'd lived. And then it says, if anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. Many Christians died by the sword. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. They've already won. They look like they're losers, but they've already won because their name is on the only roll that counts the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, this great Roman war machine had a propaganda machine in the person of the second beast. So you've got a war machine and a propaganda machine. Verse 11, we're introduced to the second beast. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb but spoke like a dragon." In other words, it's not as powerful as the first beast but it sure was as evil as the first beast and the dragon. "...It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed." Notice, this beast derives its authority from the first beast and makes everyone worship the first beast. Well, this is clearly some local Roman governor or, more likely, the pagan high priest of the province whose job it was to jolly well make sure everyone worshipped the image of Domitian in Ephesus. He performs a magic show on, uh, on behalf of the beast. Verse 13 tells us, and he performed great signs, this is the second beast, even causing fire to come down from the heavens to the earth in full view of people because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Now, what's this talking about? It could just be a reference to stuff we know from other external evidence that pagan temples did use sound and lighting shows to go with their ceremonies that actually freaked people out. You imagine being in these giant uh, temples and uh, behind uh, curtains in all sorts of corners of the room, there are, there are all sorts of weird sounds you never heard before and they've, they've had a whole lighting system It could be a reference uh, to that kind of trickery. It might just be a symbolic reference to the pomp and ceremony that went along with emperor worship. It was a very big deal. I know it's hard for us to understand, but every town throughout this region, the whole of Asia Minor and Bithynia and everywhere, were to take part in this worship. Either way, whatever it exactly refers to, the penalty for not participating, verse 15, the penalty for not participating... The second beast was given power to give breath to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. And for this we have painfully clear evidence that I've quoted several times governor Pliny just north of where all this was written too wrote to the emperor these words, "'I dismissed any who denied that they were Christians "'when they had repeated after me a formula "'calling upon our gods "'and made offerings of wine and incense "'to your statue of emperor "'and furthermore had reviled the name of Christ, "'none of which things, I understand, "'any genuine Christian can be induced to do. "'Yet if they persist, "'I order them to be led away for execution.'" Perhaps less dramatically, there are also financial penalties for not worshipping the beast. Verses 16 to 18 refer to a mark you've got to get on your hand or on your head, otherwise you can't participate in the economy. Verse 16, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is clearly a parody to the mark we heard uh, about in chapter 7 of Revelation. That mark on the forehead was the mark of God sealing those who were saved for eternity. So here's the thing, you can either be marked with a guarantee of eternal life or you can be marked to participate in the Roman economy. Choose. Eternal life, buying and selling. Don says we're meant to work out the meaning of this mark. Verse 18 is quite clear, this calls for wisdom, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man, that number is 666. We're meant to try and work this out, right? And uh, man, oh man, is there craziness about this? Uh, in, I think, the 1970s, the bank card, uh, the first bank cards had uh, three sixes in, in, the, in the numbering system and people thought, ah, it's the beast, um, The week before I started this series, a couple of months ago, there was a full-page ad in the Canberra Times. I think I quoted this on week one. Some Christian group, whom I'm sure are lovely and I'll spend eternity with them, praise God, had uh, nonetheless taken out a full-page ad in the Canberra Times, telling everyone exactly how Revelation was being fulfilled today today. Uh, with Russia and Russia was the beast and they were all going to gang up on Israel and there'd be World War III and then in one little paragraph uh, in the middle it, it, it explains who the beast is and what the 666 is all about and I kid you not they claim that 666 through a pretty complicated method adds up to one of the titles of the Pope. Vicar of the Son of God. Put into Latin, take off a few letters, give them numerical values, and it adds up to 666. And it's all laid out in this, uh, in this little ad. Problem is, the Pope never has gone by the name Vicar of the Son of God. It's just not a title of the Popes. Anyway, I mean, there's nuttiness out there. The most common scholarly interpretation of the 666 is actually really simple. I like simple explanations of this stuff. There is one famous despotic ruler from the first century whose name in Aramaic, John's first language, adds up to precisely 666. In Aramaic, uh, unlike English, letters were numbers as well. They didn't have separate thing, squiggles for numbers. So, uh, like... Aleph, Bet, Gimel, is, uh, like ABC, is 1, 2, 3, up to 9. And then uh, the, the next one uh, from 10 forward is 10, 20, 30, 40. Uh, and then it's 200, 400, 600. And, and I think the last one's 1,000. And you can basically make any number from um, just the alphabet of, of Aramaic. One name. Narom Khazar. The exact way to say Nero Caesar in John's first language. Nero, as I said, was thought to be a revived, thought to be revived in Domitian, and only Domitian of all the emperors launched a campaign to be called God and Lord, a campaign centred in Ephesus, where John had been before he was exiled to Patmos. It seems very likely then that receiving the mark of the beast is just code for giving the Roman Emperor the worship that is due to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just really a challenge about who is your Lord. And the question that emerges from all of this, for us, in case you're wondering if this was more than a history lesson, is what would we bear to remain true to the Lord? I think that's it. What would we bear, put up with, to remain true to the crucified Lord? Buff's brother, John, and family, got back this last week um, for good now, after 20 years serving the underground church in China and they've seen a lot of a lot of things we had dinner with them just last night and we talked a lot about the difficulties um, that christians are facing and how the difficulties are really ramping up he said to me last night um, actually uh, although they did plan to come back this year after 20 years um, he couldn't continue his ministry anymore the raids on churches and theological seminaries uh, becoming a regular occurrence he actually told me what i didn't know that um the people we've been supporting in chengdu were raided recently the theological seminary that we've been supporting and told never to meet again so i I don't know what's going to happen there one church he knows i think he told us this um when he was here last year one church he knows said uh, he said um got a group text from the government Imagine we all got a group text right now in the middle of church, and the text was this. Basically, but in Chinese. Dear citizen, your participation in unregistered religious gatherings has been recorded. Your personal bank account details have been secured. And you are required to desist immediately from all unregistered meetings. Think about that. We'd all look at each other and go, what on earth do we do? John knows these people personally. What did they do? Well, the one thing you need to know is they are a middle-class church in Beijing. Secret church, but middle-class. They all had money in the bank accounts. This mattered. They just instantly decided to meet in another secret venue the following week. They didn't miss a week. John also said that he's heard of other churches very recently who were 400 people who got raided by the SWAT, the equivalent of the SWAT team. They got raided, told never to meet again. Now, they are 40 10-person churches (laughs) and growing. And just before I came here, I can't resist showing you this, even though it's um, really terrible quality recording. Um. This is the um, Anglican Archbishop of Nigeria, Benjamin Kwashi. And if you know anything about northern Nigeria, uh, Christians are being slaughtered in great numbers. And he was recently interviewed, and I I just took an iPhone of a YouTube clip. It's going to sound terrible, but try and listen to what this extraordinary man, our brother Anglican, says.
2: So Ben, are you fearful or optimistic for Christians
0: in Nigeria?
2: So I have no fear as to who will wipe out Christians in northern Nigeria or in Nigeria as a whole, I don't have a fear about that at all. I am absolutely confident in God that even if they killed all the 50 million or more Christians in Nigeria, the gospel will still thrive. Persecution does not last forever. Even if it goes on for 50 years, it will come to an end one day. So my hope as a Christian is, if I live, I will do good to all people and bring the gospel's influence in the land where the Lord has put me. If I die, I'll go to be with the Lord. But before I die, I will train many more people to do good, not to render evil for evil, but to invest their lives in the gospel and to lay down their lives for the gospel to save one life.
0: That's right now. Anglicans. What would we bear to stay true to the Lord? You know, the downside of the historic success of Christianity in the West is, of course, we now have it really easy. Because we ended up running the show. And too many Christians have an air of entitlement. We feel outraged by artwork that just mocks us. Journos that criticise, politicians that don't legislate our ideas, we're outraged. Attending church each week is too great a burden, especially when it's chilly. The average Christian in this demographic gives less than 2% of their income to the church, yet we know they spend 4% on restaurant and takeaway meals. Just 37% of this church, according to the National Church Life Survey from two years ago, just 37% prays or reads the Bible most days. And some of us would sooner talk to friends about death and taxes than bear witness to the crucified Lord. You may be sitting there going, hang on, John, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say from the pulpit, and I certainly say this to staff, that guilt trips are the bluntest tool in the minister's toolkit. And yet, here you are, putting us all on a guilt trip. Yeah, it's sometimes appropriate though, right? It's a blunt tool, but sometimes a blunt tool is the one to use. I wonder if Revelation 12 and 13 is one of those times... Certainly, I feel chastened as the preacher living with these words all week. We are challenged in Revelation 12 and 13 with a cosmic history of the persecution of God's people, but a marvelous message that the war has already been won. We have been reconciled to God for eternity. And we have been given the ultimate weapon against evil, bearing testimony to Jesus and bearing whatever hardship follows. What would we bear to stay true to Jesus? May we throw off entitlement and ease. and sing the song of the center of the book of Revelation, 12 verse 11. They triumphed over Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So Lord, we pray that You help us in our weakness to be the people you want us to be. We praise you that we don't have it as hard as many other Christians but Lord, please forgive us and protect us and deliver us from entitlement and ease. We praise you, Lord, that we have been reconciled to you through Jesus and nothing can take that away. Help us live in this world Bearing witness to Jesus, bearing whatever hardship follows, that we might indeed conquer evil. We ask in the name of Jesus, crucified and raised. Amen.